1: Listening to 4th State, the show where journalists talk journalism, coming to you from Turriyia in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Anthony Dockwell, sitting in from the inner capel this week. Barnaby Joyce wants to be left alone, but for $150,000, Channel Seven has been invited into the family home. Should we be worried about this kind of checkbook journalism? Also, Facebook is in the poo again, this time for censoring the Cancer Council. Roseanne Barr has had her show axed after a racist outburst on Twitter. And finally, the ABC in Fairfax broke the story on Don Burke and his years of harassment. But Channel 9 and Our Current Affair have the nod from the Logies. Joining me in the studio to discuss these issues, we have BuzzFeed's breaking news reporter, Gina Rushton. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Emily Watkins, media reporter for Crikey. Hello, Emily. Hi. And... Joining us on the line, we have Michael Owen, who is the Adelaide Bureau Chief for The Australian. Welcome, Michael.
2: G'day, how are you?
1: On the weekend, news broke that Australia's most successful retail politician, Barnaby Joyce, and his partner, Vicky Campion, will be talking to Channel 7's Sunday night program and all for the tune of $150,000. Now, the money is reported to be going into a trust account for their six-week-old baby, Sebastian, but this hasn't stopped news of the payment from causing a storm across the country. The fallout has been so strong, Barnaby Joyce has now taken extended personal leave until August. It should be said that checkbook journalism is nothing new, but maybe it is when we're talking about a sitting politician. First up, can I gauge the feelings of the panel here? Is anyone angry that a former Deputy Prime Minister and the current member of the seat of New England is involved in a $150,000 payment for an interview? Let's start with you, Gina.
3: Um, I wouldn't say I'm angry about it, but I think it's interesting that he is willing to profit from one type of journalism, checkbook journalism, and at the same time has come out um, and and said that there needs to be, you know, privacy taught and and kind of attacked, um, you know, what would impede on another type of journalism, which really does ha- hold power to account, um, this idea that we, you know, <laughs> that he wants a kind of world where we wouldn't be able to do doorstops stops or take photos or whatever. Um, I just think it's interesting. He's willing to profit on one type of journalism and attack another. Emily?
0: Yeah, look, I mean, I'm not sure if angry is the right word, but I think it's a really bad look. Um, and I... Yeah, I mean I I'd agree with Gina I think especially when he's talking about um restricting the press in another way when he's also you know um keen to to profit from it if he can when when he is he's paid to be held account held to account by um by his electorate and to and by the press so I, yeah I I think it's
2: really off.
1: Michael do you share those views? Yeah, look, I think with with Barnaby
2: Joyce I, I, he's a politician and this is a you know, narcissism at the highest level. He, he, on the one hand, he says he wants his privacy restricted, but then he just can't shut up, and he, and he, and he can't help himself um, but continue to, to do interviews and to, um, you know, almost seek the limelight while trying to say that he's avoiding it. And uh, you know, I think the whole thing's a bit crass, and they could have, it uh, could have been handled a lot better. You know, a different politician. A different person may well have just kind of put out a statement um, and left it at that. You know, this is a private matter. Uh, there's my statement, and you know, every time he's asked a question, refer journalists to that statement. But uh, you know, I think also what what people should be more angry about, I reckon, is is the way that Barnaby's continually dumped his partner in it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it, <laughs> it was said in blame. You know, I think it's not the first time that he's uh, shunned responsibility uh, onto on to Miss Campion, who um, says that this deal was all of her, her doing. Uh, nothing to do with him. Um, and uh, I just said, it, it strikes me that he hasn't really got his partners back.
1: Now, look, every transaction has two parties. Uh, has Channel 7 erred here by paying for an interview? Emily?
0: Look, I mean, I'm probably pretty liberal when it comes to these things. I think if Channel 7 thinks that they can make ratings... Out of it, they can make money out of it, and they think it's worth it. You know, they're a business, and I I don't particularly have a problem with them paying for it. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's more on Barnaby Joyce and um, Vicky Campion ac- accepting that money um, more than anything.
1: Does anyone have a, a problem with Channel Seven paying for this? I mean, there was no shortage of media outlets willing to give Barnaby and his family a platform.
2: Yeah, I think there's obviously a market for it, and. Uh and I'm sure a, a lot of people will be watching it and be interested in in what's going on. At the end of the day, yeah, look if there was no if there was no um, no interest, there would be no payment. And uh, Barnaby Joyce and Ricky Campion uh, are completely entitled to give the interview for free, but um, they obviously have shopped it around and uh, gone to the highest bidder.
1: Now, now I'm guessing. All of us here have at some stage, when we've been requesting an interview, been asked whether there was a payment involved. Even here in community radio, it happens. How does the panel feel about checkbook journalism though? Do you see it as a legitimate form of journalism?
0: Um, I'm not sure if legitimate is The right word. I mean, I I think it sits a lot better with most people when it's someone who, um, for example, the Beaconsfield Miners or um, Stuart Diver or someone who's been through um, a natural disaster or, or has been the victim of a crime or something like that that's going to rate really well and that the network will make money off. I think that sits a little bit better with people when you know that they're also profiting off something out of something terrible that they've gone through, I think when it's a criminal or someone, you know, like Chappelle Corby's family, for example, or those sorts of situations, I think that um, that maybe is a little less um, less black and white as to whether there should be payment for it. But I think it just all comes back to the fact that they're. You know, it's commercial TV networks for the most part or the magazines paying for it and their businesses. And if there's a market, then um, then I guess they'll they'll pay if they see value in it.
1: Gina, how do you feel about yeah,
0: that? Yeah, I completely agree. And I'm um, just thinking of one instance where I
3: tried to interview someone and <clears throat> they said ultimately that they were being paid for an interview and, and it was a case in which they had been a victim. And I just remember thinking, eh, fair enough.
2: Mm. Yeah, look, it's it is, it is fru- it's very frustrating for for news journalists or for any journalist really that you want to cover a story the best you can you want to speak to all the people involved and get the facts and uh you can 't do that if uh, key people involved in that story uh refuse to speak to you because i 've done some exclusive deal with another outlet and you know look it happens it 's a reality it's you know it's commercial. Interests out there. I think, you know, in some cases, um, uh, the one that springs to mind is the uh, the two backpackers, the one from uh, the Brazilian and the German girl, who were attacked uh, by that, uh, that that crazy guy on the beach in the Kurong. They did a paid interview, I think, um, uh, with with one of the the networks, and uh, I don't think anyone would um, would hold that against them uh, for for doing that. Uh, interview uh, after the, the fact, uh, because it was such a traumatic experience for them, and uh, I suppose they felt that um, you know they could control the, the story a bit better if they were, um, were talking about it, and if they can um, you know have some money towards their futures after what they went through, uh, you know perhaps uh, that's fitting as well.
1: Okay. Well, it seems the the general consensus is that there are times and places for checkbook journalism, but let's bring it back to the the coalface of our democracy. Um, Barnaby Joyce has said that he's not receiving any payment here. It's going into a trust account for his child. But does anybody here see long-term implications if if money is going to family members or politicians?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, it's not a great precedent, but I think it's quite unusual. I mean, I'd like to think this these circumstances aren't something that happen that regularly. I mean, I in recent history, I can't imagine a story. I can't remember a story quite like this, I should say. Um, so, I mean, hopefully it's an exception with the, you know, circumstances, the personalities involved. Hopefully it's not a precedent. I think, you know, it's, I think it's a bit clever to be saying we don't benefit because it's going into a trust for our son because that's still money that, their son will be getting that they won't have to fork out, whether it's for school fees or um, university or, you know, something like that.
1: Michael, how do you feel?
2: Uh, look, I think it's a bit crass, as I said earlier. I, just, I think that, end of the day, um, you know, you, you, on one hand, you can you can understand at a very base level why they accepted the money, you know, like Vicky uh, Canteen's a former journalist and, um, uh, secretary uh probably hasn't got much hope of going back into (laughs) a press secretary role so um you know uh, she would be i suppose aware of um the financial aspects that could be made out of such a story and to you know to, to strike while the irons hot while there's interest uh you need to move quickly on these things before interest wanes and uh you know but Barnaby Joyce uh He's not a poor man. He's, uh, he's, look, he's earned more than $3 million during his political career. He's going to have a pretty healthy uh, superannuation scheme um, when he finally quits politics. Uh, and so uh, I don't think you can kind of say in this case that they're crying poor. Um, and I think, you know, out of all this, no-one's really thought about the child. I mean, end of the day, uh, you know, this child has no say over... What's happening, and also, you know, Barnaby's family. You know, he, he, this is not his only family. The whole thing, um, mm. you know, is is not a edifying spectacle um, for his own family. Imagine being his daughter or, or his uh, ex-wife having to watch this uh, on national television. Uh, I think it's it's a pretty selfish act, uh, I would say, by both Barnaby and the Vicky Camping.
1: Now, Gina touched on this earlier that uh, Barnaby's called for a tort of invasion of privacy. And, and the logic being, if there is logic in all of this, if it was illegal for the Daily Telegraph to cover his private life, there would be no story to sell. Hmm. Um, now, you know, the idea of protecting privacy in common law is uh, best a thought bubble at this stage. But, you know, from little things, big things grow. Uh, how worried should we be about the idea of privacy and journalism, you know, operating together at the same time?
2: we should be very concerned when politicians try to restrict the uh, uh the actions of the media uh and cloak it in something about um you know um privacy uh because uh these laws can be manipulated uh to ensure that uh, other aspects of a politician's private life that may impact upon his public life uh are not covered under the, you know, by the media, if these things come into effect, so I think any time a politician tries to restrict the, um, the rights of the media of the media to to report, uh, alarm bells should ring pretty loudly. I, I, I would say.
0: Yeah, I think especially as well when it's tied in very specifically by Barnaby Joyce in this circumstance mm-hmm. to his own situation. Um, you know, I mean, it's sort of been recommended. From time to time, over the years, by the Law Reform Commission and um, various reports, that um, there be a statutory privacy right written into our our law, but n- neither of the major parties have ever really shown any interest in making making that happen in the past. So you know, it's um, waiting until his own privacy is invaded um, to to suggest that it's time to um, to change the law is. Yeah, is is probably not quite right. I wouldn't have wouldn't have thought. I would
3: love someone to ask Barnaby if he thought that their tort of privacy should apply to or should have applied to Johnny Depp and Amber Heard with their two dogs, <laughs> <laughs> because he was pretty happy to <laughs> to drag them publicly.
1: Uh, look, I mean, he's he's brought up that you know his house was buzzed by drones and harassed by paparazzi. Mm. I mean, does he have any point here, or is he over egging the dishes? I don't think
3: he really has a leg to stand on. To be no. honest. look,
0: I mean, um. Australia does have notoriously weak privacy laws, I mean, in that we don't have any um, statutory right to privacy. Um, But I mean, I imagine even if we did have a tort of privacy, that there would be some sort of, or I would hope that there'd be some sort of public interest Mm. defence written into that, in which case the Daily Telegraph, as it has been all along, would be um, when it first revealed this story, um, that it was in the public interest and there have been legitimate questions that have been raised about the relationship and, and how it related to um, his office and his work. So, um, I mean, I'm not sure that it necessarily would have stopped the story coming out anyway.
2: And, and just in regards to the, the drawings, I mean, I, I, look, I... I'm not a lawyer, but I would have thought I don't think it's actually legal to put drones over people's houses or in their backyards or mm. so forth. There are restrictions around the use of drones and that type of thing. So, and there are still uh, there are still privacy laws in place and basic laws on trespass and other things such as that. So, you know, if Barnaby's got a problem, uh, he, perhaps he should go to the police and uh, you know let them handle it rather than trying to change the law in a way that makes it look as if he's trying to protect himself.
1: You're listening to for State. I'm Anthony Dockrell. This week we're talking to Emily Watkins, media reporter for Crikey, BuzzFeed's breaking news reporter Gina Rushton and Michael Owen, who's the Adelaide Bureau Chief for The Australian. Just when you thought Facebook couldn't go any lower, they're now stopping us Australians from talking about our poo and our wee. The Cancer Council has had a series of ads banned on Facebook all because they want us to get a check-up, and also look at our poo and our wee. The ads are designed to raise awareness, but also break down the barriers of shame that stop people from looking and talking about their bodily waste. The Cancer Council has tried a number of times to make the ads fit Facebook's rules, but all to no avail. The sticking point for the ads is to do with Facebook's viewing these ads as referring to people's personal attributes which under its guidelines is not allowed. Now, I'm sure all three news organisations that you represent would reserve the right to reject any advertising that fails to meet their standards. But, Emily, can you make sense of this move from Facebook?
0: I guess I can see both sides of it. I, I mean, I understand, obviously, that Facebook has its rules around what advertising it will accept, especially when it's targeted in the way... That it is. So I, I guess I can see where they're coming from. But I think it just shows that when you have really rigid rules at a really big organisation like Facebook, and like the Cancer Council has said, you know, this is our only way of targeting a lot of people, and it's a very effective way of targeting people. I can see why they're upset. And I, I don't know, maybe if there was a little more of a human touch at, fa- at Facebook that could maybe look through and make a, a common sense call on this, that probably would have made sense in this um in this instance.
1: Gina, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think like it just as a I think the everyday person would kind of read that and just think, what the hell? Like, you know, you think about the stuff that's allowed on Facebook and within Facebook groups. I understand this is advertising, but but like, you know, i just think of the Clive Palmer meme page and the amount of like anti Semitism and racism and just there's just so much stuff on Facebook that is so deeply offensive. Um and Uh, Yeah, I just think it's crazy, to be
1: honest. So, look, you know, there are two sports that unite the world, soccer and bashing Facebook. (laughs) Um, You know, is Facebook in a no-win situation here? If they let these ads go through, uh, will they be letting uh, less well-meaning ads come through?
2: Yeah, I I think it's kind of one of those uh, those funny things where it's almost like you're dealing with some kind of um, computer algorithm and you can't actually uh, make any common sense argument to a real person i just wonder I, I i just unclear as to whether or not um someone from the council council actually could could sit down and have a phone conversation with somebody from facebook or whether it was just uh some guy in um you know silicon valley and uh just just making a just you know going through the rules and going well actually no we can reject it on this basis so i you know i think sometimes it's a problem with these with something that becomes so big and so huge um that the uh, the common sense goes out the window because decisions are being made by people that um, you know are following some kind of strict rule book uh and um yeah there there's not a lot of there's not a lot of uh, leeway or compromise there so um you know it's it's a funny story uh you know I'm sure there's there's ways of getting around it um, you know uh perhaps by getting people to post things and tag them in but uh yeah as 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 far as an official uh, campaign goes um, it looks like um, you know, the Cancer council, council are going to have to think of a different way around it or or perhaps make some kind of direct contact with the people that run Facebook if that's possible and that's uh, pretty hard to do sometimes
1: Gina, is the the problem here just that Facebook is too big it's too global, it just is not able to deal with any kind of subtlety or anything to do which is obviously, you know, it's a local issue here in Australia
3: I'm just going to say yes, because I think that all news organisations should drag Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, no, I think you're right. Yes.
1: You're listening to The Fourth Estate. Well, Roseanne Barr has just discovered the power of social media, with the American network ABC and Channel 10 here in Australia axing her show in a matter of hours after she posted a racist tweet attacking Barack Obama's advisor, Valerie Jarrett. Roseanne has since apologised, but the damage is done and her show that had returned to high ratings and positive reviews is finished. Gina, was the ABC and Channel 10 correct to act so quickly?
3: I think so, yeah. I mean, I think the the thing with Twitter is you can't really hide from it and I think ultimately it would have been in any any of these situations. There would have just been calls for it, calls for it, calls for it. And
1: It's not something that we've actually seen in the past. Normally these kinds of situations are drawn out and it's a very long, torturous mm-hmm. A poisonous and painful experience. This happened so quickly.
3: Yeah, I, I just think that they probably saw that that was the inevitable end
1: and decided to. Mike, what did you think of the the swiftness from the ABC?
2: Look, I think Roseanne Barr she has a she has a brand. Uh, you know, she's known for vulgar comedy, um, and I think she probably just misread the mood pretty badly here. I think that you know, once upon a time, you could get away with this type of stuff, but uh she's become yet another another person celebrity and um media identity and uh, any other number of person that's uh that's reached for the phone bashed in those things on Twitter and uh realized later it was probably not a good idea uh and uh so she's another victim of another victim of a of a stupid tweet.
1: Look, Roseanne's history on social media didn't stop her getting employed, but ultimately brought it to an end, uh, at least on network TV. What point do you think an employer should explore someone's history and and at what point should they back off, Emily?
0: Oh, I have no doubt that ABC knew about Roseanne Barr's history. I think, um, I think they were probably hoping to get some extra ratings out of it. I mean, controversy drives ratings, um, you know she was tapping into a mood in the US that for better or worse was would get either um, positive or negative responses i think they knew what they were doing and i think this was kind of inevitable and i think part of the reason that they acted so quickly was because she's done she's tweeted very similar things in the past and apologized and then done it again and apologized and i i think this was always going to going to happen
1: so who sees as just a case of the abc wanting fire and unfortunately getting it yeah, I. Yeah,
2: I. Th- well, I think well to, be, to be to be fair though, I mean, uh, you know, Roseanne Barr hasn't hid who she is. So her show appeals to a certain market, a, a pretty big market because um, when her show debuted, um, you, know, well, you know, I suppose rebadged her rebadged show, uh, it was the best ratings for a comedy since 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, and and when those returns were in, um, uh, ABC. Instantly renewed her show for a second season. So, uh, you know, I think you can, you can push the boundaries. You can get away with stuff. You can tweet and uh, and so forth. But um, on this occasion, she went she went too far. Um, and uh, you know, the, the, she's not the first, and she won't be the last person to do something stupid on Twitter and um, and find themselves in trouble over
1: it. One of the aspects of this particular situation is not just the hurt that she's caused. Um, something in order of about 200 people are now out of a job. You know, there's a very long tail to this particular uh, tweet, if you think about it, and if you're, especially if you're one of the people who now doesn't have a job. As a media organisation, what, what, what do you think they should be doing to protect themselves and also their staff? I mean, uh, we could just say, hey, don't, don't employ racists, but is there anything they should be doing that they're not doing? Gina,
3: that's a really hard one, and it, it is obviously the responsibility of the station. And I, but I think, as Emily said, it was a calculated risk. Like they know what she was like; they probably knew this was always a risk. So they already had, in a sense, put these people's jobs in in the firing line. I think by just by
2: hiring her. But yeah, there's I, no, but there's no guarantees. I mean, those people could have been out of a job after two mm. episodes if the show tanked. I yeah. mean, you know, like I think I think the people that are working in this environment know exactly. Um, the, the, the say, job security.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's such a fickle industry, like you said, Michael. It could, yeah. you know, if, no. that, if there had been terrible ratings on the first episode, they might have canned it without even finishing Well, I, th- season, I think they would have,
2: have it? canned it without even well, thinking.
1: Well, yeah. yeah, OK, well, look, finally, eyebrows have been raised in journalistic circles around the country this week, with Channel 9's A Current Affair being nominated for outstanding news coverage for their interview of Don Burke. Only problem, they didn't break the story ABC and Fairfax did. Now, being a journalist can be a thankless task at times, but were the ABC and Fairfax hard done by here? Gina?
3: Um, I'm generally really wary of journalists who take awards seriously and also journalists who take their work too seriously. But I actually think this was pretty terrible. Um, I think that um, it seems unfair. It seems odd. And I, I don't. You know, I don't know what the process are, processes are for choosing nominees, but um, I think that you have to reward original journalism and, and yarn breakers. And I think that um, it's also interesting, like the story. You know, the the original investigation was about the women and their stories, and um, I think in a way that this choice shows that we we don't reward we didn't reward that. I guess as much as this kind of exclusive sit down with.
1: Yep, Don coming back to TV.
3: With yeah, with Don. So.
1: Now, Jenny, uh, you know, Buzzfeed recently uh, broke a story about the Commonwealth Bank losing yeah. uh, twelve million accounts, mm. and other news organisations, you know, ran with the story. <laughs> uh, is it annoying to do the legwork and see others steal your glory?
3: Yeah, I mean, look, we get it particularly bad. People are particularly embarrassed to attribute um, Buzzfeed news with our scoops, and that's fine. Um, but uh, yeah, it is. It is frustrating, and. Um, you know, privately and sometimes publicly on Twitter, you can be petty about it. <laughs> but Yeah, it is. Look, of course, it's frustrating. It right. is.
1: But look, here's the here's the rub, I guess. Like, as a journalist, you work on a large story. You want other journalists to pick up that story and mm. run with it to keep moving through the news cycle. Yeah. Do journalists need this to be like Elsa from Frozen and let it go? Emily?
0: Maybe. I mean, going back to the Logie example, um I mean, Kate McClymont, who worked on that um, story as well for Fairfax, um, was quite gracious on Twitter and and said that Tracy Grimshaw did do a really good job of that interview with Don Burke, which she did. She did a it was an excellent interview, tough interview on him. Um, yeah, look, I think, um, like Gina said, I think if you take awards too seriously, that's not um, not very uh, becoming, perhaps. But I mean, I think a lot of journalists as well don't really take the Logies too seriously. I think they probably care more about the Walkleys, which are judged by journalists, and that um, the ABC's 7.30 piece about Don Burke actually has been um, shortlisted, I think, for I, I think one of the Walkley categories that's just been announced this week. So um, they're yeah. probably pretty happy about that.
3: And sometimes with exclusivity, it's it's annoying
0: when it's like it's
3: so, for example, I write about reproductive rights, which no one cares about. So, when someone plagiarizes my story for a big outlet, which they do often, I kind of think, "Yeah, more coverage." I don't even care that you've copied and pasted this because this is an issue that no one's talking about. But, but when you've got um, something that's really niche and exclusive, and you know, and um, you know, it kind of. I, I guess it just changes with whatever the topic is.
1: Yeah, well, I don't think people realise how hard and how much sweat goes into some stories with yeah. the research, with the le- going through legal, you know, the back and forth, mm. uh, arguing about a word and mm. suddenly... You and put the Combank
3: one, obviously, there was a lot of legwork, a lot of legal, a lot of risk and, and then, yeah, we weren't really
2: attributed anywhere. Mm. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, I've, I've learned over the years not to get too hung up on... Um, On awards, look—you know—you win some and you lose some, and and at the end of the day, uh, it's it's so um, you know it's it's a it's a bunch of other people making a decision—a very small number of people in some um, cases—with their own biases and their own views of the world. Um, that are going well. This entry is better than that entry. I mean, who are these people? You know, <laughs> so, so you know, a, a, a small judging panel. It's certainly not. Um, it's certainly not. You know, um, a popular vote. Uh, so I think that um, at the end of the day, the ABC and Fairfax, uh, they know that they broke the story. Everyone knows they broke the story. Um, uh, and getting back to the point, um, raised earlier, That's just supposed to be about um, the issue, and rather than the than the award. And, you know, getting a pat on the back for, for doing it, I mean, I think the fact that it was such a huge story it had such ramifications should be reward enough to be honest and um you know the, the fact they chose Don Berg to go um, to, to to go up with that was also done quite deliberately to get as much attention as they possibly could um to the issue um, so you know I think um getting hung up over about whether you get a a Logie nomination for your your story or someone else gets a Logan nomination for following up that story Um, end of the day it's all just you know jealous ego really
1: That's it from us on 4th Estate, thanks to my guests Emily Watkins, media reporter for Crikey Buzzfeed's breaking news reporter Gina Rushton and Michael Owen who is the Adelaide Bureau Chief for The Australian Next week Peter Frey will be in the host seat Make sure you subscribe to 4th Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media and politics and where the two combine. We'll be back with more next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle is for for State AU. My name's Anthony Dockville. Thanks for listening.